But where are you really from? But where are you really from? Hey everyone, I'm Angela Lin, and I'm Jesse Lin, and welcome back to another episode of But Where Are You Really From. Today we have a special guest, as you may see if you're watching this on video. We have Clarissa Way. Hey, welcome on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course. So Clarissa is the author of a brand new book that's out now called Made in Taiwan that we were super stoked to hear about and to get a copy of so that we could peruse ourselves. Clarissa, we were so excited to hear about this book because we both are also Taiwanese American. And I think I came across it on social media at first of like randomly pushed to me through the Asian American like network. I love the community. It's so small, but like so efficient. Right? I think so too. You kind of hear about everything big through like very few steps away. So yeah, I'm so glad that we got to connect with you directly on this and to have you on the show. Before we get too deep into it, we want to make sure the listeners get a little bit of a sense of who you are. So uh, feel free to introduce yourself and wherever it makes the most sense, throw in your answer to our signature guest question, but where are you really from? So I am really from Los Angeles, California. That was where I was born, raised, spent most of my life. Um, but now that I've been living in Asia full time for five years um, and I've been in Taiwan um, since 2020, I really identify more as Taiwanese American, even more so than I did um, growing up in L.A. So I'm from Los Angeles, but I currently live in Taiwan and I'm Taiwanese American. You're also a food journalist. So how did you get started in this world? And also, how did you decide you would go back to the motherland? Because I think for a lot of Asian Americans, it's not always like an immediate thing that they think to do. Yeah, so I've wanted to be a journalist since I was like 17, 18 years old, just watching CNN. Um, had this distinct realization if I wanted to sort of influence the world or um, tell the stories I wanted to tell. I wanted to work with mainstream media. Then I went to journalism school in New York. I was at NYU and I interned for all of these giant companies, broadcast companies, news organizations. And, you know, I did a lot of breaking news or daily news. And it was just really depressing <laughs> to me. It was really dark. I saw um, producers in their 30s, which is, you know, how old I am now, or you know, even mid-20s. And they just looked really depressed. And I did not want that to be my future. I just, um, initially signed up to be a broadcast journalist. And I, again, did not enjoy that and just started writing. Um, and my first exposure really was when I was studying abroad in Shanghai and started writing about Western restaurants um, in China. Back then, there weren't that many. And then when I moved back to New York and LA, my niche just sort of became Chinese restaurants in America. And it was a very strange niche. This was the time when blogs were really popular and I just kind of fulfilled the space and went on to travel all throughout um, China and Taiwan and freelance writing for a lot of publications like Vice, 
Um, and back then there were a lot more media startups than there are now. Um, and then moving to Asia full time, I got a job offer um, at the South China Morning Post in 2018. And basically the ask was you can travel to China, you know, once or twice a month and film videos and we'll pay for everything and you get a team. And it was a dream job. I was single, kind of confused, didn't have a full time job. I've always been freelancing and I was like, sure, I will take a full time job for this. And that was amazing. Um, but around this time, I also, you know, met my future husband. Um, and then the pro-democracy protests happened <laughs> and then COVID happened. And with all of that, we decided to move to Taiwan <laughs> where I am here today. So it's just been a series of weird events that have led me here. I never anticipated to move to Taiwan. I didn't know I was going to stay here that long. Um, but I'm really glad I'm here. I think now is the time that people are looking for stories um, from this part of the world and Taiwan. I, I don't know like when was the last time you guys have been here, but it's just so easy to live here. It's really affordable. It's really great when you're a freelancer and I love it. I think we're going to be here for a very long time. I love when I hear about people's trajectory and it's like not mapped out at all and it's more like opportunities, doors opened and you just followed it. So it's very cool that you ended up that way. I guess one immediate question for me, just imagining myself, if like all of that happened to me, how did you adjust with like language? Because it's something that we talk about on the show sometimes, like both of us grew up speaking Mandarin. Our parents like made us go to Chinese school and we talked to our parents in Mandarin. But a lot of times when we go back to Taiwan, we feel like, oh, there's all this like vocabulary that we don't know, just everyday things. And sometimes we can feel a little out of water in that way. So how was that transition for you? And are you feeling like you're totally blended in now after the five yeah. years that you've... <laughs> No, I mean, it's really interesting how, like, probably with you guys, like, my first technical language was Chinese, right? But then going into school, you learn English, and then that uh, surpasses it. And even going here in Taiwan, like, speaking Chinese, some people can, re like, they know that I'm not from here. But then it, I sort of take it as the mentality, you know, how when we were kids in the States, eventually you learn that, hey, I am American. I was born and raised in America. I'm American. I kind of have to psych myself and thinking the same thing here in Taiwan where yeah my language skills aren't perfect and I do have that problem with vocabulary but just being like hey it's a work in progress I am Taiwanese I am from here and um, even if I'm not like I'm trying my best and if anything it gives me sympathy for my parents because even to this day their English isn't perfect and you improve slowly so I mean, uh, for me, it was gradual. And when I went to NYU, I took a bunch of Chinese classes. Um, China really helps because they're really direct there. I love speaking Chinese in China because everyone has such different accents. And if your accent is off, they're just like, it doesn't matter. Let's just communicate. Taiwan is a little bit more difficult, a bit more homogenous. I find the culture here very passive aggressive. So if your vocabulary is off and you're in a formal setting, people will look at you like there is something wrong with you. Um, but again, I think my key is more psychological and just telling myself it's a work in progress. I do belong here, even if people think I speak like a child. Um, I'm trying my best. And, you know, I 
ask for help. And that's also really important for the cookbook. I asked for a lot of help. I had a, a researcher, a recipe developer, and knowing when to ask for help and knowing that you're not going to achieve extreme fluency, you know, maybe never because it's such a difficult language um, that really helps with, you know, living here. You mentioned the book. So we'll bring it back to the book. What inspired you to write Made in Taiwan? And how did you also get that opportunity? Because not everyone, even if they've been writing a long time, have the opportunity to write their own book. So how did that all come together for you? This part of the story, I haven't actually told anyone, but I remember when I was in my early 20s, I came to Taiwan and I was with a bunch of Taiwanese Americans. I went to S-Lite, which is like the big bookstore here. I don't know if you guys have been. I just saw like the cookbook section and I just blurted out loud. I was like, I want to have a book here. And the guy who was standing next to me, I remember specifically, he looked at me like I was crazy or was like, who is this random person? Who does she think she is that one day she can write a book that will be here in a bookstore? So it's kind of always been on my mind. Um, and I'm sure you guys feel the same. It's just the stories from this part of the world are... They're told, but they're told from a very limited perspective, and rarely are they told from the perspective of people who live here or who are Taiwanese. And pitching this book, it was a process. Um, I first got the idea when I was living in Hong Kong. Um, I, again, I was there during the whole pro-democracy protest, and I really saw how acutely a place's sense of identity, culture, and food can be wiped out so quickly because of politics. Um, and that's because my job was to cover food and culture, which I did not touch politics at all. But when we were, you know, filming videos on Hong Kong food and culture and you're talking to these old people, they're always the last generation. And the young generation doesn't feel like picking it up because there's just been such a change in society there. And I knew I didn't want to do anything with Hong Kong because I'm not I don't speak Cantonese. I'm not from there. Um, but Taiwan was the place I wanted to focus on. So I had this acute realization I wanted to write a book about Taiwan before it was too late, because during this time, not only were the pro-democracy protests happening in Hong Kong, but China was sending an unprecedented amount of airplanes over Taiwan's um, air identification zone. So tensions were really ramping up back home in Taiwan. And when I first pitched the book, it kind of was met with radio silence from most of the publishers. I remember there was a comment where someone said, oh, I we have an author of Taiwanese heritage already. We don't need another Taiwan book. That person's book had nothing to do with Taiwan. It was just she was channeling the food of, you know, her parents, um, her background, which is great. Um, but there just wasn't this urge, you know, um, and then nothing happened um, for a year. And then in 2021, I think after the world saw what happened with a Hong Kong, the COVID and see stop Asian hate in, in New York and a lot of the big American cities, then there was this realization that, okay, the Asian stories are important. Not that they weren't before, but I, I think people just started to see it and the book sold really quickly. And if anything, I got paired immediately with a publisher who understood my vision really well. And I also at this time had revised my proposal to embody the urgency of the Taiwanese story because my first round, it was just let's just do a book about Taiwan. There wasn't any reference of politics in it. It was just this is a Taiwanese cookbook. But second round also have me having lived 
through all of that, I revised it to include the politics. And that worked. Um, and honestly, when people ask me, you know, how did you get this? It really was timing. A lot of this has to do with timing. Obviously, having a portfolio and having written about food for about a decade now helps. But most of this is a lot of good luck and finding the right people who want to work with you. So speaking of the right people who wanted to work with you, where did you find all of the different like cooks, chefs, the folks that are featured in your book or help contribute a recipe to help collaborate with you on this? I think when I was just starting out, one of my gripes about food journalism was that sometimes people would parachute into the place and then just write about their experiences and all of a sudden it's a book. And I really did not want to do that, even though I am Taiwanese. I am aware that I am Taiwanese American, that I spent most of my life outside. So my first task was to find a core team to help support me. So I found a researcher who was born and raised in Taiwan and I found a recipe developer. Her name is Ivy Chen and she's been teaching Taiwanese food for over two decades. And with this core group, they were able to help me find sources. And also because I've been working as a journalist, a lot of these stories, a lot of these people in the book are people I had interviewed before or had encountered before. Um, but what was really helpful for me, again, was assembling a Taiwanese team who could guide me to, you know, their friends, their family or people that they know. So this book really is a combination of like my old sources, Ivy's friends and people that my researcher cold emailed out to. I also put a post in like the Taiwanese home cooking Facebook group, which there's a lot of people in Taiwan in there as well. And a couple people reached out and they were interested. Um, but that was more difficult um, to source. If anything, it was just on the ground connections. And it was also really important to me to get a diverse group of Taiwanese people in the book. You know, not just people whose families came after 1949, not just people whose families have been here for over 200 years. Taiwan, even though we look very homogenous, even though ethnically a lot of us are Han Chinese, we come from different waves of immigration and that has shaped our family backgrounds and that has shaped, you know, our cuisine as well. So again, just sort of getting this comprehensive outlook and swallowing my ego and knowing, sure, I have um, a chunk of money and this ability to just have a book with only my name on it, but I really don't want that. I want a team to help me get the story out. It definitely comes across because just flipping through the book, you can see that you really did try very hard to show the multifacetedness of the society because selfishly for me, my dad is Hakka. So it was actually kind of cool to see like, oh, there's a whole section of like just Hakka related recipes that I don't know that much about honestly, that side of the family. So it's kind of cool to be able to use food in that way also to feel like I'm connecting more with that. And I also appreciate that you had like the Aboriginal people's influence too, because that's a big part of almost any culture. So yeah, I, I love that it was definitely like very obvious that you put in the conscious decision to explore all different reflections of what Taiwanese society means, not just like Taipei also, because a lot of people only think of Taipei when they think of Taiwan. Yeah, the narrative of Taiwanese food has been kind of stuck, huh? Like, I feel like it's always Taipei, night markets, and then even in America, most of our restaurants are open by 
peoples who families came post 1949. So it's a lot of like beef noodle soup or like yo tiao, salbing, just these very limited menus. And there's nothing wrong with those; are just as Taiwanese and just as great and delicious. But again, I wanted to expand that. So I'm glad you picked up on that just by flipping through the book. I love how all of the recipes kind of have a little story about the recipe before you actually get to the the cooking part of it. Was this part of the research that your researchers did, or was it part of like an oral history that the person who prepared the dish like told you about? It was a combination of both. I mean, you guys know sometimes when you talk to older Taiwanese people, they're just like, I don't know why you care so much. So, what I did was I had these research topics or questions I would ask my researcher, and she would prepare me like Google folders and just like throw in fun facts. And then when we interviewed these people, I would ask them a couple of questions. But like to be honest, most people did not give me much interesting information. It was just this is how we've been doing it for. So long, and maybe they'll throw in a tidbit. But one of my first tasks that I gave to my researcher was, "Hey, give me a list of ten books here in Taiwan in Chinese that talk about food history." We don't have a lot of great cookbooks here, but there's a lot of good food history books. So she got that, and then she like went through all of them and like sticky note and highlighted、um, key parts. So. It was kind of from a, a broad level, and then when I did interview those people, I would get a couple of facts. I did that on purpose because I don't like reading through cookbooks and seeing a generic headnote that could be written about any recipe that could be found online. I really wanted every single headnote to teach you something new, or else why would you buy this book? You can just go online and Google it, right? Well, I actually made the、um, the popcorn chicken recipe, and I was reading it, and I was like. Oh, this is a very somber history. <laughs> yeah, that history is like the the family that popularized、um, popcorn and chicken. They were jailed for、um, putting some sort of substance in it that has cancerous effects. How was it? How was your popcorn and chicken? <laughs> it was delicious. It was really, really good. I didn't get the right kind of chicken per se, but it was still very, very good. Yeah, I'm. Like I'm a bit nervous because here in Taiwan we don't season very heavily. Everything's very light, right? And so when I got a group of recipe testers, I think I had like forty.、Um, the feedback was, "Oh, it's not salty enough. It needs more like spice." But then Ivy was like, "We need to not listen to those voices that much because that's very much like the American palate." <laughs> Coming in, and I don't know if you guys know, like if you eat at a Taiwanese restaurant in America versus here, like the salt levels are completely different, or like everything's very saucy. And so I just want to like tell people, you're welcome to make the recipes and add a couple grains of salt, but like I just want it to taste like how it tastes like in Taiwan. I think that's so prevalent, actually, across Asia. Because I was living in Korea and Japan this last year, and especially Korea, I was talking to my friend who owns a couple restaurants in Seoul about it, and I was like, "Look, your burgers like very good, but why is it not as?" Salty,、yes. <laughs> and he was like, Koreans don't like it as salty. I was like, oh, interesting. And then I started noticing, like, oh, actually, yeah, a lot of these other dishes aren't as salty. But I think what's different is that we compensate with different spices. Like, maybe it's not as salty. I feel like Americans just oversalt things because they're like, I don't actually know how to flavor this without the salt. So just like add that magic ingredient in. But other cultures add. 
different elements to it so that you don't necessarily need all that much salt. Yeah, I mean, even in Southern California, where we're from, the Asian restaurants, they have sort of evolved to add a lot of salt because their clientele are, you know, Asian Americans or Americans. And like, it took a lot for me to understand that. Yeah, I love that type of food. It's delicious because that's what I grew up with. But like here in Taiwan, it's a little bit different. It was so much like restraining myself. I just wanted to add like a little bit more salt for everything. But like I wanted this to be a work of journalism, not to cater just to American palates. Hey listeners, wondering how you can support us? The biggest way is by increasing our visibility by following us on Instagram at Where Are You From Pod, on TikTok at But Where Are You Really From, subscribing to our YouTube channel under But Where Are You Really From Podcast, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and telling your friends. The more people we can get to listen to the show, the more we can continue spotlighting different perspectives and stories. And if you feel so inclined, we're also accepting donations at buymeacoffee.com slash where are you from. Thanks, y'all. When you were reaching out to different folks to collaborate with you on this book, the whole book is not just meant for Americans, but I imagine a big subset of the target audience is kind of like us kind of people, like American-born diaspora folk. So did you find that those collaborators were excited to like try to share more of that with our subset of folks? Or how did they think about it when they were imagining, I guess, who was going to read this book? You're exactly right. Like the Asian American, that's like my secret audience. That's who I write for because those are the people who understand and are excited about it. But I obviously know like, cause this is a big publisher that the audience technically on paper is the average American reader, but I didn't want to tone down or dilute anything for it. This was very much me just being like, okay, I am aware my general audience is the average American, but I really want to write this for Asian Americans because I really want us to have this moment. And my collaborators, I don't think they necessarily made a distinction between those two because they haven't been to Asian America. I am their Asian American friend. But what was really touching was that they saw this as a once in a lifetime opportunity as I do as well. And everyone put in like more than I could ever ask for. They kind of saw this as, hey, this is probably the only chance or the best chance I have to represent Taiwan. And the things that they did just like surprised me. Um, I did an Instagram post about this, but my food stylist and photographer, when we started shooting, I realized that they had sat down weeks ahead of time and read every single recipe and head note and then created scenes based off of that. So if you look closely, every chapter has a different light, like a different mood. So the night market has the more warm and orange light because that's what night markets are like. The family style is more bright and with more pastel colors because that's what like their perception of a Taiwanese home is like. Um, and then they would throw in little Easter eggs there's a recipe for peddler's noodles. That's a dish in the South um, that was invented in a, an area called Enping. And Enping has this fort that was built by the Dutch. Um, and they use oyster shells as glue to put the bricks together. And then so she ended up sourcing one of these bricks. And that's like in that picture. <laughs> so all of these little things that I did not ask them to do that they put in because 
they saw this as a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I was really touched by that because it's not just them. It's a lot of people here in Taiwan where they, there's this desire to be able to speak up and tell their own story. But because of the language gap, they don't get the opportunity to. If anything, it's like people like us, Taiwanese Americans, constantly telling their story. But their story is very different from our story. And again, it was just such a moving experience working with um, such a great group that put in their all for this. Do you feel like potentially a motivation for some of the collaborators was that there's nobody to pass this off to? Because I think of a recent show I watched about street food in Singapore, for example, they were saying like a lot of the hawker market stalls don't have people who want to run them anymore, right? Like food service is a really menial, like hard job to do. Did you find that when you were you were working with a lot of these people? Yeah, and that's something I've grappled with. I think when I first started coming to Asia in my early 20s, it was like, why aren't you guys preserving this? This is so cool. Like some hipster in LA would love to like know this. Actually, my distinct memory, this is a complete aside, but I was like in a very Tibetan area of China in the Sichuan province. And we were with these like nomadic people with you know, yak hair tents and they only had a solar generator where they could charge their phones. And one of them told me like, you know, we just want to sit in New York City and have a cappuccino. Like, why can't we have that? You know, why do we have to preserve this way of life? Like you guys are constantly improving. Why can't we improve? And that really hit me. You know, we sort of romanticize these one dish wonder vendors who've been doing the same thing for years. And that's really great, but they don't necessarily see it the same way. And I think that's just as valid as well. Obviously, there is a subset of people here who want to sort of preserve that. But I think the desire to innovate and have a better life, better income and not live in a non-air conditioned shack um, trumps preserving tradition. How do you want to preserve tradition when you can barely make ends meet? I think a lot of Taiwanese Americans or a lot of the diaspora, we really romanticize the motherland, but it's quite difficult for people here. Our minimum wage is low, like about a thousand US dollars. It's really depressing for young people, but housing prices are about the same as in LA or in New York, which is insane. So then knowing these economic dynamics, um, when I talk to these people, I'm no longer as judgy as I was when I was younger. If anything, it just makes me appreciate that, you know, that these vendors are still here, that they're willing to share their recipe with me. And, and I do hope by telling their story that they will also feel appreciative of their own recipes, but that's not something that should be forced on them at all. Yeah, it is kind of weird to see that push-pull. I was in Japan for like six months of this past year, and it's also one of those places where like there's a strong tradition of if someone in the family started like a one dish or like one type of food type restaurant or a certain craft that you're supposed to pass it on to like the eldest son or whatever, and they're supposed to carry it on forever. But there's that push-pull of like, okay, there's this duty of this long-standing tradition, but at the same time do I really want to do this? I guess it just depends on the culture and how much you're willing to try to uphold that versus as Americans, we're constantly trying to fight for our own like individual wants and desires. So yeah, as Americans, you're always proud of your heritage, right? That's such a big thing, especially with new restaurants opening, even if it's not like a traditional thing. It's like, 
this is my take on modern Taiwanese food and that's super exciting. But I see like a lot of the new restaurants opening. It's like this is a taco place or Korean place. And that's more exciting to people here than doing like a beef noodle soup place again. What do you hope for Taiwanese culture and food culture to be in the U.S.? with this book moving forward because as you were talking about earlier of like this book being your vehicle of sharing Taiwanese history, Taiwanese culture with people, I was kind of reflecting myself of like how much do people even know about Taiwanese culture or what Taiwanese food is because as you mentioned, we grew up in Southern California. I think of all of the U.S., that is probably the part of the U.S. that knows the most about Taiwanese stuff because so many Taiwanese people moved here in like the 80s and 90s. So a lot of the Chinese people are Taiwanese. But outside of that, like if I tell people I'm Taiwanese or I ask them if they've had Taiwanese food, they're usually like, what is Taiwanese food? Like, is that different from a Chinese restaurant? So what's your aspiration for how this book will change that narrative, hopefully? I hope through this book, people can learn more about our history. Like, I didn't know a lot about our history before doing this book, especially for the diaspora. We know about Taiwan through the lens of our parents. And at our ages, our parents grew up during martial law in Taiwan. And that was, it's the longest, second longest period of martial law after Syria that has had a huge implication on how that generation sees Taiwan. Um, they were told that they were Chinese and that they would eventually, you know, the government would take back China and that Taiwanese food and Chinese food are kind of the same. There's not that much of a difference. So my hope with this book is a, that people will realize that Taiwanese food is much more than the stuff that you see in America and the Taiwanese restaurants there. But B, sort of learn about our history and learn about modern Taiwan. I don't think a lot of the young people, Taiwanese Americans, necessarily know what's happening here in Taiwan with all the, the tensions. We just see what we see in the news, but it doesn't really make sense based on what our parents told us. The beauty of having American citizenship is we can sort of disassociate ourselves and not have to think about what's happening to Taiwan and what's happening is that we're having a very drastic existential crisis. Tensions are at an all-time high and I can't ignore that because I am a citizen here, I live here, my family is here and I think back to those days when I lived in America and I could just turn that off and not have to think about it. And I know that's like really dark and heavy for a food book. But I think it's really important too, especially now with a lot of kids of Taiwanese heritage wanting to understand the background, this heavy political stuff comes with the background and it's just going to be more and more relevant, um, especially as we have a presidential election coming up in January 2024. And that's also going to accelerate or might determine our future. I saw this in Hong Kong, like when the pro-democracy protests happened, a lot of the Hong Kong diaspora, they started being like, oh my gosh, what's happening? I want to learn more. And I feel like there's this desire amongst Taiwanese Americans to kind of learn a little bit more. And my vehicle is through the lens of food. I'm curious to ask if you've seen any food innovation that's different from what's in the cookbook. I know you mentioned that there are a lot of more like western style restaurants opening up gastronomy and like cocktails and all that stuff becoming like much bigger of a scene there utilizing like more local flavors 
Oh, yeah. That's like all the fine dining scene. The restaurants that are being opened by young Taiwanese chefs, a lot of them, you know, stodged or went to culinary school abroad and then they came back. That's super exciting because what they're doing is they're taking ingredients that are either native, endemic, or just grow really well in Taiwan. And they're sort of creating their own cuisine. And it's not necessarily like old school street food. And it's not like fine dining Chinese all they're doing is just highlighting the best of Taiwan. And I hope to see that seep out to more middle uh, range restaurants. But right now, that's still very much contained in the fine dining restaurants. But on that topic of innovation, Taiwanese food isn't stagnant. And people have been inventing weird things forever. <laughs> so like, I have a whole section about, you know, how the Cold War when America gave Taiwan billions of dollars of USA that spurred on all these weird dishes. So, you know, for breakfast, a lot of people go to a, a breakfast stand that is called Mayor May. There's a lot of knockoff chains here and it's like hamburgers for breakfast and like then being and they'll have like spaghetti with like black pepper sauce. That stuff is just as Taiwanese as like a bowl of um, braised pork belly. Um, but we don't really know that in America because we weren't exposed to it or, you know, no restaurateur is going to open a Taiwanese style hamburger place <laughs> in California. But that's an example of an innovation that happened in the 80s that has um, carried through. So innovation is constantly happening. But for me, the most exciting innovation now is um, in the fine dining restaurants. We often talk about how culture, including food, that's passed on to a lot of like our age people or children of immigrants gets frozen in time based on like when our parents left. So yeah, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, why would somebody open a spaghetti black pepper sauce thing in California when they know that like five things hit in the US from Taiwan? So just like, blow that up instead. Yeah, our food in America is exactly like you said, it's stuck in time. And our perception of Taiwan for a lot of people is also stuck in time. And it really took like moving to Asia to be like, whoa, 20, 30 years have passed. And like, I felt like I had to make up for that narrative or like tell the story of that gap. I'm curious because you spent quite a bit of time in China as well and like both as a I think you said study abroad and also like working there. So since you spent significant time in both China and Taiwan, I'm curious if the sentiment you got from people who actually live in China, given the very like tense political climate doesn't necessarily match up because sometimes when I talk to Taiwanese people, it always comes up, right? The China-Taiwan tension. Somehow it always comes up. And some of them had been telling me like, yeah, it's sticky because there is that sentiment of like one China, but a lot of Chinese people who go to Taiwan and actually like experience what Taiwan's about usually go back and say like, hey, let's just like leave them alone because they have like their own flavor and we don't want to ruin it. So did you find that there was that sentiment or where's the line? that people draw with politics or culture. Yeah, I mean, and I loved going through China. I love the people of China. And when they realized I was from Taiwan, I got nothing but positive vibes, which seems really contradictory to what you hear in the news. And it's like, I want to stress like the people of China, they're not their government. The aggression is not coming from Chinese people. And even when you see, you know, those online attacks, it's a very specific subset of people probably hold up in their, their depressing little rooms in a big city. Um, but exactly like what you said, like most people that I've encountered, which again is a very small sample size, it's a giant country, but most people that I've encountered, they are 
are aware of the tensions. They can, you know, jump over the firewall. And if anything, they were a bit sympathetic. And the general consensus is like, hey, like the tensions suck, but like, what can we do? Like, there's nothing they can do either. If anything, the animosity is more from the Taiwan side. Like if you ask a Taiwan person about China, there's so much like, oh, I hate them or there's just much more anger, but that makes sense because Taiwan is the one on the receiving end of all of this aggression, not China. So it really is a shame. Like I am really lucky that I got to travel so much and so freely before things got really dicey. I don't know if I feel comfortable going back to China. And that I say that as someone who just wrote a cookbook, you know, this is nothing extreme, but it, it doesn't really matter at this point. So in terms of sentiment, I think the majority of Chinese people that I met, they like Taiwan, or if, like you said, if they have been to Taiwan, they really love Taiwan and they wish they could get a visitor's visa and they could come and like meet all the friendly people here, which is really cute. But here in Taiwan, the love isn't necessarily mutual. And and that makes sense as well. Well, on that note, I think we'd like to talk a little bit about the recipes in the book. We'd love to know what your favorite recipe is from the cookbook. Yeah, I really like the lulufan, which is the braised minced pork belly, because it's really easy. This was a, a difficult recipe for me to like grasp my mind around in the beginning, because I think when you Google it online in English and even in Chinese. There's just so many spices in it, right? They put like five spice and like cinnamon and bay leaves and like all these like soy sauces, Shaoxing wine. And then I went down south, which is where my family is from. We're from Tainan. And I found this like vendor who's been doing it for like three generations. We were filming a documentary about him, but I was like, can I just watch you make your little fan? And he just put like three ingredients in it, which was soy sauce, rice wine, oh, a little bit more than that, sorry, soy sauce, sugar, oh, and shallots, water and shallots, so four ingredients. And I was like, wow, this is so simple. And like the way he achieves complexity is that he takes the braising liquid from before and like adds onto it. So it's kind of a buildup of flavor. And then I realized that, you know, in America, we kind of overdo it. We want to put a lot of things in it, but also the American version of Lulafan is reflective of the Northern version in Taipei, where they put a lot more spices in the South. They don't put any spices. And that kind of just taught me that some things are very, very simple and we just kind of overthink it, especially for the diaspora. I feel like we just try to like, how do I make this dish that tastes really good? And we want to put more and more, but really sometimes the secret is to put less. And then he told me that his secret, his tip is to just put mostly fat. I think a lot of the braised pork belly in the States, there's a lot of like, they'll put ground pork or they'll put like fancy cuts of like pork meat. But he, like, I think the exact quote was, I was told this was a three to seven meat to fat ratio, but to tell you all the truth, like it's all fat. And if you like look at, if you go down South and you have a delicious bowl of lulafen, if you look at the little pixels of pork that they have, it really is mostly fat. And that's why it's so delicious. So just being able to be on the ground and talking to people has been such an enlightening experience. And again, I like that dish because it's so easy to make. You cannot put it in an instant pot or pop it in a steamer and then you have lunch or you can bulk make it and then you'll have lunch for the rest of the week. 
Well, you took the second question, which was what was the easiest recipe to make? So maybe what's the hardest recipe to make? There's so many hard recipes, actually. I think a lot of the desserts take a lot of time. And that was something, again, that surprised me how a lot of the street food is very technically difficult. So one that we struggled with was actually the ice cream burrito, the Hwasan Bingji thing. So uh, I don't know why Ivy and I have this tendency to overcomplicate things because technically you can just buy a spring roll from 99 Ranch, put on ice cream and then peanut with sugar, roll it and call it a day. But when we started talking, we were like, wait, let's do all of this from scratch. So we have this spring roll wrapper from scratch, the ice cream from scratch and the peanut brittle from scratch, even though like they shave off the peanut brittle and you just sprinkle it on. But again, it's just this desire to get as close to the source material as possible. And what was really difficult, believe it or not, was the ice cream because Taiwan, we do not have a old culture of using milk. Um, a, most people are lactose intolerant or were. Actually, I asked someone about this this week and I was like, why do we have like full milk boba now, um, considering that most people are lactose intolerant? And he, the guy shrugged and he was like, maybe it's a weight loss tactic. Um, but back then, it very much was um, they used milk powder or just a little, yeah, milk powder for flavor. And then, so the challenge of making this old school Taiwanese ice cream was to make ice cream without milk. So getting that texture right, um, using starch as the binder was really complicated. The, the first couple of variations we did, they, it became really powdery. It did, didn't last well. It just didn't taste right. And I sort of gave up. I was like, Ivy, let's just tell them to buy ice cream. <laughs> like they don't, like most people don't even care for taro ice cream, but she just like, went over and over and over it at home. And one day like showed up at my front door with like a little taste, like a spoon of ice cream. And she was like, I got it. We like figured it out. So a lot of these recipes, again, like the backstory are really difficult, but I hope that I had have written them out detailed enough so that if you really wanted to, you can recreate all of this at home. But keep in mind that they are time intensive um, because that's just how they are. And if anything, it made me really appreciate it. You heard it here first, folks. You got permission from the author to do some shortcuts if you don't want to do everything in the book. A lot of these things is like, why did we do this? Like we made pork floss from scratch too. I saw and that. I was like, I didn't even know you could make it from scratch. I thought it was like, you know, you need a factory. Like someone's doing some like big machinery stuff and that's the only way. Traditionally, you do it over a walk and you just like dry the pork until it's like soup. And then I was like, we're not like, no one's going to do that. Can we do it in an oven and then when you do that you change everything and so there were so many like burnt pork flosses <laughs> that we had and we eventually figured out how to do it in the oven but it's still I think it takes like two hours still oh I think one that's very technically difficult is the crystal dumpling the ba one which is like a jelly ball and then there's meat inside if you go to the vendors in Taiwan what they do is they take a plop of like dough they put the meat in and they plop it down and that's really difficult there's no gluten it doesn't hold together it's just like taking toothpaste and putting the meat in and plopping it down there's like no way anyone is going to do that so like ivy devised a method where you paste it over a saucer put the meat in and then paste the dough over but like i me and ivy have gotten really good at that but when other people do it it's still like kind of clumsy and really difficult 
but like if you try it long enough, you'll eventually get it. Well, related to kind of attempting to keep tradition, but finding slightly different ways to do it. We know another project that you have been working on or worked on recently was a cooking show. I saw that you have been doing that with a Taiwanese American influencer that I see sometimes on my TikTok feed. Yeah, Brandon. So how did you get involved with that show? And what is that all about for those who have not heard about it yet? It's on Taiwan Plus, which is a a government-sponsored TV channel. And the idea was just, I make a traditional dish. And then the ask was to make a 30-minute show, which is a long time for an introvert like me to just be in front of the camera. So my friend, who's the, the director of the show, found Brandon, who's amazing. He's Taiwanese American, grew up here, has way better Chinese or Taiwanese than I will ever have. And, you know, he's a comedian, a TikTok star. So I make a traditional Taiwanese dish and he does his twist. And it was just really fun. I think we shot it within the span of a month. It was fun to just be able to riff off of dishes with someone who grew up here. I didn't have to explain anything. (laughs) I didn't have to like get too philosophical. I gave him some fun facts that he didn't know, but um, it just felt really comfortable. And he did his weird, crazy twist. We failed a lot of times. There's a million ways to do one dish. My beef noodle soup recipe is not the definitive way to make beef noodle soup, nor is my braised pork belly over rice. I just got these dishes and I like cite my sources um, from where I got them, but you can make tweaks to them based on region or your own personal taste buds. Yeah, I love that because, again, as we already kind of talked about in your book, because you do represent different regions and different like backgrounds of people and the foods associated with that. I don't think there is necessarily one way to make like any such thing because even in Taiwan, many people will have slightly different recipes depending on which region or which family like tradition that they're following. So it's nice. You're basically giving like a window into someone like us that may not have like ever cooked it before, but good to know you can always kind of tweak it based on what works for you or what you like most. Yeah. And I made a conscious attempt to never use the word authenticity in anywhere in the book because I hate that word. I hate the gatekeeping that comes with it. And I hate when, especially, I mean, I I used to do this when I was younger. It's just starting out like this gatekeeping of this is real Taiwanese food. But again, like it's so personal to everyone. There is no one right way to do it. And the best way to tell the story of Taiwanese food is just to tell the story of the people of Taiwan and have them share their dishes. There's no definitive correct way. Well, that is a lovely sentiment to end on. So while we are closing up, we want to make sure that folks who are listening now know where to get this book, y'all. So it's available now. Where can people buy it? Any bookstore in America should carry it or could help you order it. Bookshop is a really good place to go to support indie vendors. Um, Because I'm from LA, I'm always pushing people to um, Now Serving LA, which is a cookbook bookstore, and they have signed copies. Um, So it'd be really great if people were willing to support it. But yeah, the book is officially out in the world. And I'm really excited for people to read it. And I would love to hear feedback as well. It's just been me and my team kind of in a hole. So I have no idea how it's going to be received. Is it also available in Taiwan? Or how would anyone who's listening based there get it? And you can order it on S-Lite, which is the biggest bookstore in Taiwan. So you can pre-order it on their website and hopefully they'll stock it in their stores. But S-Lite is the best resource for that. 
And are there any other projects that you have going on that you want to let people know about or where to find you? Uh, no, if anything, I'm just sort of taking a break and like, it's finally out. I'm going to shepherd it into the world and see what happens. But where to find me? I'm on Dear Clarissa for all of my handles, Instagram, Twitter. And yeah, I am just going to take a much needed break. Well deserved. <laughs> well deserved indeed. Yeah. Well, congratulations once again on this book. And thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all. Let us know what you thought about this episode. If you have questions for Clarissa, you can drop them in the comments on social media or wherever you're currently watching this. And come back next week because we will have another fresh episode for you then. And until then, bye, 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 bye